Welcome to the M Files. You are listening to Valerie Anella Mayers, Patty Wood Finkel, John Woodward, mining the muse in the museum world. On tonight's episode, we are talking with Lindsay Doyle, the director of the Fort William Henry Museum. Welcome, Lindsay. How are you tonight? Doing pretty well. Thank you guys so much for uh, having me on. Well, thanks for coming. We appreciate it. We are excited to learn about your museum. But first, I've got to ask you our standard question. It's the same question we ask all of our guests. What is the strangest thing that has ever happened to you at a museum? Now, this could be a museum you work at, currently a museum you used to work at, or even a museum you were were a visitor at. Uh, Well, this one is a twofer for you because it is where I used to work at uh, when I first graduated college, and it is now also uh, the Fort William Henry where I am the director of. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are... Uh, know anything about the haunted history that surrounds uh, the Fort William Henry Museum, but it is quite uh, a place for spooky paranormal sightings. Um, I, for one, did not really believe in any of that until I did start working there for the first time in 2015. Um, I had heard all the stories. I had actually uh, failed out of being a ghost tour guide because I uh, did not like one of the areas so much, Um, but still watched Wanted to believe that it uh, was was not not for me, and that it was probably all fake. Until one day um, in the dead of October, actually right around this time, uh, nobody was really in the museum because uh, Lake George is a tourist town. So end of October, nobody's really around anymore. And uh, I swear I heard one of my fellow tour guides call my name out uh, from the parade ground, which is the area in the middle of the fort. And when I stuck my head out of the exhibit area that I was in to look for him, he was nowhere to be found. Um, Then I assumed uh, he was playing a prank on me until a couple minutes later, he wandered back into the museum and he was out uh, actually in his car the entire time rolling the windows up because it had started raining. Uh, So ever since then, I'm like, okay, I believe, I believe that's fine, guys. I know you're all here. Um, (laughs) We were, we were often told uh, when I worked there as a guide, uh, the guides all dress in 18th century uh, British military uniforms. And uh, there were several other female guides uh, who are, of course, you know, we always, we always had our male names ready to go for the tours. Um, And we were always told that the ghosts uh, that still existed and hung out around Fort William Henry, of course, those, some of those were the original British soldiers in the 44th and 35th regiments that served there, did not like the ladies uh, who were dressing up and uh, portraying themselves as male British soldiers. So that is an awesome story. It kind of reminds me of, uh, we have a reproduction uh, 19th century army fort in, in Casper. And the three of us have a, a mutual acquaintance that he's been followed home by. Oh God, not the followed home stuff. Don't please don't yep, tell me that. No, thank you. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I think his name, I think that's grumpy who followed him home, but yeah, I think so. <laughs> so Lindsay, tell us your journey from academic career to your present position at the museum? Well, I always uh, was a big history nerd. I think it was uh, the stories that really got me. Um, I always loved reading as a kid. So to me, uh, learning and and researching different parts of history was just more uh, like reading all the books I had at home. Um, 
my parents are also big history buffs, uh, so I was dragged to a lot of uh, 16th century Dutch uh, timber frame type structures growing up because my dad uh, builds those type of timber frame buildings. And uh, my mother loved old uh, grave sites and graveyards, which did also terrify me as a child. But I still learned to love history. Uh, every time I went to a museum, I was always fascinated with what was behind that red rope that said staff only, uh, you know, no, no entry behind this point. Um, now I know that it is mostly just chaotic storage, but that's okay. I think everybody tries their best. Um, I, uh, I also just, uh, when I, yeah, yeah. And now I'm just picturing everything I have to do tomorrow with our chaotic storage. Um, the, uh, the the museums I was lucky enough to work in um, were also, you know, very supportive in uh, training new people and younger people. And I think I really always loved the supportive environment that I, I found at, at every different museum I've been at. I think the museum and industry is really special in that sense, is that we really do love meeting fellow museum nerds and helping each other out and encouraging everyone to grow in this field because you know, it is very difficult, especially, you know, if, if you guys are, I'm sure, uh, aware, as Patty was mentioning earlier about the small museums where you just, you don't wear a lot of hats, you wear all the hats. Um, so it's nice to always get somebody <laughs> equally as excited to come in there uh, and help you out with everything. But I, I when I was a history major, um, everyone's like, oh, you're a history major, that means you're going to be a teacher. And um, I actually, I prefer seniors to children. Uh, so I knew that that path was not for me. Uh, and I started kind of looking into what else I could do with a history degree. And that's how I landed on museums. So um, I was lucky to get hired by the Fort William Henry Museum after I graduated college and worked there for a few years as a guide, um, an assistant curator and uh, museum educator of sorts. Again, one of those multiple hat types jobs. Uh, and then I left to uh, pursue my master's in public history um, in Ireland. I went to the University College oh, nice. Dublin there. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I did get my master's successfully. Uh, was I writing my thesis in pubs? Yes, but I think that that is just more about embracing culture uh, than yep. anything else. Yep. So uh, what I, I was returned from there and um, started at the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame in Saratoga Springs, New York. Now that is not car racing, that is horse racing. Uh, people get that confused <laughs> about us all the time. Uh, wonderful group of folks that work over there. Um, I learned a heck of a lot about uh, horses and horse racing and thoroughbreds and all of the work and dedication that goes into raising them and, you know, cre creating these magnificent animals and then the training involved. Uh, and it just was a piece of information I was not familiar with before. So always grateful to learn more about literally anything. Um, when the director position uh, opened up, um, let me see, April of 2021 at the Fort William Henry. And luckily, I still had a few contacts there and they reached out to me. And uh, that's where I am today. Nice. That's wonderful. Do you use any of the knowledge that you gained about horses at your current museum since you do have interpreters and, you know, thinking to the time period of when some of that, um, the, to the historic time period, there would be horses in use for 
carriages. So and... one would assume uh, where okay. we are, where we are located, where the Fort William Henry was originally built. Uh, so it's it's right on Lake George. It's in the Ad- what the Adirondack Park is now, which mm-hmm. is the New York State um, State Park. Uh, and it would have just been extremely dense forests at the time. So there were some oxen uh, that did help with building the structure, building the fort, but uh, horses were not super prevalent in the area um, just because it was more difficult to use them uh, in that sort of densely wooded area. But there's not a lot of crossover. No, um, I was quite honestly very surprised when the National Museum of Racing decided to hire me because they did ask in my interview, you know, what do you know about horses? And I said, well, my aunts had some growing up. And uh, when I was 12, I really wanted one. And my dad said, sure, you know, if you can get up before school every day and go help your aunt out at her barn with the horse, you can get a horse. And I think I lasted a week uh, before before I failed out of that one. So uh, my father did well with that little task because no no horses here. Mm-hmm. So, but that was my, yeah. my entire experience with the animals before I started. So um, <laughs> like I said, I was just able to learn a lot, but uh, not, not a lot of info that, that uh, goes into my current job, no. <laughs> hmm. So tell us a little bit more about, uh, about the fort. Um, you know, you mentioned that it's a, uh, 17th century uh, interpretive site. Um, you know, I did a little bit of reading beforehand and it talked about it being a, a reproduction, a more modern reproduction of the fort site. So tell us a little bit more about your institution. Yeah, so it, yeah, so it is a, a reconstruction. Um, spoiler alert, the French did win uh, the siege uh, against the British at <laughs> Fort William Henry. So they burned the original <laughs> to the ground. Um, as as what happens with a wood fort, there was almost nothing left. Uh, so uh, you know, essentially, this is the French and Indian War. So uh, we're about 20 years before the American Revolution. And uh, the fort was originally built in September of 1755. And this, uh, when, when the British won the Battle of Lake George... And that they had claimed this land as the northern northernmost point of territory, and the French had New France, which was everything north, uh, a lot of what is today Canada. So the British decided that we need to build a fort here because they had Fort Carrion, which was at the nor- the top end of Lake George, later becomes Fort Ticonderoga, which I'm sure we've all heard of uh, for the role it played in the Revolutionary War, but. First, it was a French fort, Fort Carrion, uh, our enemies, if you will. And so they decided to build Fort William Henry there. Uh, did not last very long, only lasted about two years. Uh, in August of 1757, the general Marquis de Montcalm organized a successful siege against Fort William Henry. The siege lasted about six days, but to our credit, Montcalm thought he could take the fort in about two days um, and his and his entire plan was to continue going south and capture Albany which was uh, really the central location of the British military in the colonies at the time so because he took six days at Fort William Henry lost too many men spent too much ammunition um, he was not able to continue continue further south so we like to think of it as yeah we lost but he didn't get to Albany, so we sort of did our job. Uh, we were so we we did surrender, and the French did burn uh, the fort completely to the ground. After that, um, again, it was a wood fort, so only 
uh, some pieces remained. There are two elements in the reconstruction uh, that are part of the original, the walkway to the powder magazine. Some of the stone and brickwork on that path are from the original fort and the remnants cool. of a fireplace as well that is in the West Barracks casemate um, because they did rebuild the fort on almost the exact footprint of the original. Um, not, they did do a series of archaeological digs uh, starting in 1953 before they did rebuild, thankfully. So a lot of the pieces in our collection are actually from the original fort itself. Um, and after several years of digs, when they weren't finding anything too much anymore, they actually contacted the Tower of London and they still had the original <laughs> plans for the fort. So oh, wow. we cool. were able, Whoa. yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, we, I say we, I was not alive, but uh, so in 1955, <laughs> they did uh, rebuild that fort to the original plans. Uh, there were a couple design elements that they decided uh, not to pursue. The original fort had uh, four barracks, a north, south, east, and west. We only built the north and south uh, because if we had built all four, the parade ground, that, that center area would have been tiny. Uh, we also did not fill the walls with sand as they would have. We left those mm -hmm. empty so we could put exhibits in there. Do do I remember right that those walls were 30 feet thick? Yep. And filled with all that beach sand that from was... Lake George. Wow. Mm. Yeah. That's crazy. And they built that for yeah, Exactly. That's true. I think that's why we lasted six days. Uh, and they yeah. actually built it in 44 days, which is kind of remarkable. Wow. And my favorite story about this uh, that I like to tell kids when they come through is the, the provincials, who were the colonists, who were, of course, fighting <laughs> alongside the British uh, during this war. Uh, the provincials, the colonists built the fort. And then uh, the regiment of British troops came up and said, all right, thank you very much. We'll stay here with the roof over our head, and you guys can go live in tents in the entrenched camp. So, uh, I think you know maybe that was the beginning for the colonial grumblings <laughs> for the American Revolution. We may never know. Um, yeah. As you can see, <laughs> that, that I, we try to take a lot of credit. Me grumbling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. That would have totally started me grumbling. So, Lindsay, it takes a, a lot of people to make history come alive. How big is the staff? And I bet you have a large volunteer docent pool too. Yes. So we are extremely lucky. Um, during the heat of the summer, uh, when we are at our busiest, we have a staff of around 35 in total. Wow. Um, we That's have awesome. absolutely incredible guides. They are just an enormous wealth of knowledge. I mean, these guys never stop reading. Um, and it's to the point where sometimes I have to say, listen, I know you just want to read more, but there's like a family over there and I think they might want to talk to you. <laughs> uh, but they are just so, so incredible because all they want to do is learn more and share their knowledge. And we like to think of it at Fort William Henry as we like to make it as entertaining while maintaining that historical accuracy as well, because I think that if you make it entertaining and make it uh, something that people want to listen to and can engage with, then they will actually retain the information uh, that you're telling mm -hmm. them. And I've got some real characters on staff. I mean, everything um, from poop jokes to uh, different types of, you know, 18th century terminology uh, that we can attribute back to the musket um, and things like that. So they really do keep everyone's attention and just do an incredible job, as you said, bringing that history to life. Um, we do have 
an excellent group of volunteers as well. A lot of those volunteers come in the form of local reenactors. So we're very lucky on that end as well, because those folks also are incredibly knowledgeable. They school me every day and it is awesome uh, because I love to learn more. And most of these uh, guys, and, and we have uh, a few women as well who portray camp followers, have just been doing it for decades. So they they just have an immense wealth of knowledge. And I'm very, very lucky to be surrounded by those people, both uh, as employees and volunteers. Do they mentor new people? Do you do you find do you have volunteers that come and say, hey, I'd really like to be involved with this. I just moved here. I was involved, uh, you know, as a reenactor at this interpretive site in another place. And so the, the current people mentor any anyone new or is there any kind of you know, docent training that takes place in the education department? Yes. So we definitely uh, have to do a whole training for any of our new guides. Uh, We do shoot a musket and a cannon as part of Mm -hmm. our daily military demonstration. So as you can imagine, there is extensive black powder handling and training along with that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. We we make sure everything is very safe. Uh, Nobody touches anything until they've gone through a lot of training. Uh, But like I said, everybody is so respectful uh, and knowledgeable that it is just it is just amazing. Um, We do have uh, a couple reenactors who really enjoy meeting the new guides at Fort William Henry. I think they like to see it because we get some younger kids in, um, kids who have you know just graduated with a history degree, for example, and they're kind of where I was, which is, what the heck do I do with a history degree if it's not teach? Uh, so we get some of those guys in. We actually have a few teachers on staff where this is their summer job and weekend job. Um, and again, you know, kids in school, in grad school, freshly graduated. So a lot of the local reenactors uh, like to come in at the beginning of each season and sort of be like, all right, where's the fresh meat? Who can we mold <laughs> into a future reenactor? Uh, because yeah. <laughs> they really want to bring that that younger generation up. Um, so just again, we're just so, so lucky to have that that guidance yeah. from those folks. And you had mentioned before that the tour guides are not just regular tour guides, but they are decked out in British military uniforms. So in the height of summer wearing wool, I mean, that that's a special kind of dedication. Yes. Um, they make fun of me because during those types of uh, very, very hot and humid days, I tend to run around yelling at them to uh, drink more water. Uh, and yeah. then they kind of respond to with, Lindsay, I have breaches on. Do you know how hard these are to get off and go to the bathroom? <laughs> So it is, it is ridiculous. Uh, the wool, yeah, we, we do try to, um, we, we don't make them wear, uh, the wool jackets, uh, not, and we don't, they don't have to wear their regimentals during the summer. A few of them tried to during some very, very hot weeks. And I said, absolutely not. Um, but they do, they, we've got a wool waistcoat, they've got wool breeches, you know, their gaiters and their shoes. Um, but it is very, very warm. And uh, we do our best to keep them, we cycle them through the air conditioning. Uh, so good. we could keep them cool as possible. But yes, you're absolutely right. They are a very, very dedicated bunch. Mm. So you, you talked about, you know, the weather and how that impacts is one of your challenges. What are some of the other challenges that you have working in you know the reconstruction of a of the fort and and being you know right on the lakeside 
Yeah, a couple different things. Um, I mean, Fort William Henry, like I said, was built back in the 50s. And as I'm sure you are all aware, there have been a lot of changes to museum standards mm-hmm. in the past, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. So uh, Lake George residents used to sort of just, as I'm sure you've, you've all uh, dealt with, they would bring uh, the objects they found in grandma's attic to the museum because it's old and you're a mm-hmm. museum. Um also, because Lake George is an area that was so active during several different wars uh, between the French and Indian and the Rev War, there are just a lot of bodies buried. Uh, there was a smallpox hospital in the area at one point as well. Uh, it's kind of a well-known fact that if you're digging in Lake George, you're going to need the state archaeologist and the CDC on call uh, because you're going to find something. <laughs> So it had been told to me that the previous director and the one before her had uh, been given some bones. Uh, You know, people, people from the town said, Oh, well, I found this. Uh, I found this, you know, in, in my backyard. uh, And I did let uh, our board know that if anyone came to me with a skull, I would just be calling the police uh, and that we would, we would not be doing that anymore. Um, but that that's probably got to be something that I'm sure a lot of museums deal with. But that sort of like, here is an object that doesn't fit your mission mm-hmm. at all. Uh, and now, you know, it is in the collection. So I have a wonderful collections manager who uh, her name is Anna Arkins. And it is her very, very large task to um, go through our entire collection and uh basically choose what items we want to deaccession. Uh, luckily, there are a lot of very small uh, historical societies and other um, type of culture mm-hmm. institutions around where we are. So we're very hopeful that the 19th century tea set uh, can find a home <laughs> with one of the yeah. uh, spots that it does, it does fit one of their other locations missions. So speaking of collections, you had a piece recently conserved. Could we hear more about that? Yes, uh, we are. We are very excited about this one as well. Uh, I, I know I told you guys that the fort was rebuilt in the 1950s. Unfortunately, it suffered a pretty devastating fire in 1967. And oh, no. as these things would occur, of course, uh, it really hit hard in our West Barracks, which that is the area where we do have all of our collection storage. So unfortunately, there are a lot of records lost, which is, you know, fun for us to yeah. deal with still today. Uh, but there were a lot of objects that were damaged in that fire as well. One of them was a powder horn that was donated to the museum uh, several decades ago, and it was a powder horn by the name, a man owned this powder horn, his name was John Lee, and it was from 1756. So uh, very time period correct. Um, It was one of the original type pieces that uh, are are from that exact era that we have in our collection. So we were always really excited about it, but we wanted to make sure uh, that it was conserved in the best hands. We have a friends group by the name of the French and Indian War Society at Lake George, uh, some very dedicated members of that board that help us uh, with these types of things as well. One of them is a maritime archaeologist by the name of Joseph Sarzinski. And Joseph Sarzinski had a relationship with the Rhode Island uh, Maritime Archaeology Project. So he was able to get in contact with those folks and coordinate the conservation efforts on this powder horn. So we were extremely lucky. They did an absolutely phenomenal job on it. And you can actually see the etchings uh, that were made into 
this powder horn uh, and etchings made into a powder horn were uh, very traditional for the time period. Uh, but they most of the time were campaign maps and, and things that would have reflected where this soldier was, you know, physically located when he uh, had this powder horn. Um, we did not find a campaign map. Uh, we found what we originally thought was a love poem. But uh, upon further research, one of our docents, I have to give uh, Lydia some credit here, one of our docents found the powder horn very interesting, took some photos, did some research, and discovered that it actually is a dirty limerick. So we do love we do love it when uh, history has some fun facts like that at us too. So hey, you know, I love working, history. Work, working with with military collections that does not surprise me <laughs> one bit. You, I've seen all. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I've seen some weird stuff before. But you know, one question I have. You know, before we started recording, uh, and as you guys started, you talked about having. Uh, ghost, you you worked with the ghost tours at uh, at the fort, and that's you know the the issue of bringing in paranormal investigators and doing ghost tours is something that has really become more popular, say in the last fifteen to twenty years, at mm -hmm. institutions across the country. And there's been some there's some some for it, some against it. You know, what are some of the pros and cons you found uh, having those kind of groups coming into into the fort? So that's a great question. And, and it's something that I know I have struggled with. And I know uh, my staff who is very dedicated to preserving this history has also struggled with for all of the very valid points that you mentioned. Um, we like to combine the history and the paranormal a little bit. So for example, uh, we changed the name to from ghost tours to uh, the haunted history tours, and we have included more history elements in there. Um, we also did have to change the name because some people thought it was like a haunted house. So, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> we uh, so we did make an adjustment for that. Um, all of our haunted history tour guides they always, they learn the history first, and we sort of tell the stories of different uh, paranormal sightings or pictures people have uh, captured and things like that. And we find a fun way to tie it back to the history that actually happened there. Um, and mm. in addition, uh, we do have parent overnight paranormal investigators. Those are always uh, with a, a couple members of our staff are with them overnight. They are always versed in being extremely respectful of the history that happened here Um and, and they uh, surprisingly, they all know a lot about the history that happened there. And in my experience, those groups that do come um, are extremely respectful and extremely interested in the history. Uh, so they really they really do a, a great job as well. So luckily for us, we have had some pretty decent success with it. Um, and I think that that is all because of uh, the respect that everyone who comes through the doors of the fort really has for the history and uh, quite frankly, the lives that were lost on the site. When I was doing some research today to make sure that I didn't ask you something that was not associated with your fort. Um, when I put in the name in the search engine, it came up as one of the most haunted museums in America. So it's nice to know that you guys have embraced embraced it and are using it as an educational tour, tool to let people know that, yes, history happened here, that 
you're very respectful of that history, but there's also a fun side to history. And, you know, people that maybe thought that history or museums weren't for them, it might be a way for them to, to find their way into museums and enjoy the experience. So. Exactly. I, we just had a Boy Scout group in and they actually did both tours. They did our daytime uh, military demonstration and history tour. And then they did our nighttime haunted history tour as well. And um, I, I was lucky. I was talking to a few of their uh, scout leaders and they just said, we've never heard the kids talking about history like this. Like, like we've got a couple kids mm-hmm. who are doing terribly in their history classes at school, quite frankly, but they're reciting back to us all of the things that they've learned from the guides. And to me, that's just like, that's my favorite thing because I was always a history nerd, even as a child. And um, my mm-hmm. friends were always kind of like, well, you're a bit of a loser, Lindsay. History is not fun. Uh, but now, so no. now History's when kids awesome. come in and they, they, they like it, you. I know, thank you. <laughs> yes. um, so it's, it's always good to see that when kids get excited and, and start actually remembering mm-hmm. and, and being excited about history. Oh, absolutely. So I have one one more question for you. And this is, as Patty likes to ask, you know, about her experience. What is your favorite item in your collection? I know this is hard for any museum person to say, what is that one thing that they love more than anything else? But I, I'm always curious. So what's your what's your favorite item in your collection? It's like being your favorite child. I know. I know. And if it's the powder horn, you can pick oh, your second favorite. I know. I'm kind of like, I love that powder horn so much right now. Um, yeah. Not just for the dirty limerick, but, you know, all the conservation efforts. Uh, I think one I, of my... I, I want to know what the dirty limerick is at some point. I can, <laughs> Maybe I, not while I can we're send you guys some photos. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Um, I think one of my favorites, uh, we have a Dutch infantry musket in our collection, uh, and it's an original uh, 18th century, and it is pretty rare. Um, you can tell by the markings that are on the lock uh, the lock piece on the musket uh, and on top of the barrel. And we believe that it was part of a series of muskets that were ordered uh, by the British government to give to the provincials when they were fighting for the French and Indian, like in the French and Indian War. Um, and there were only a couple thousand of those made. So the fact that it's an original and it survived and that we have it in our collection, I just really, really like. Uh, It also, when I researched it back in 2016, um, it kind of opened up uh, a whole new avenue of research uh, to me. I didn't realize how much information was stamped on those barrels and locks on on those 18th century uh, muskets and different types of pieces and how those stamps could tell you so much about that particular gun and where it went. And uh, that's, that's something that can be applied uh, across, across, you know, a couple decades there. Oh, more than that. Uh, we're able, you know, I work with world war two and Korea war era weapons all the time and makers marks and armory stamps. Uh, I can, uh, we can still use that today. Um, you know, in lieu of uh, serial numbers, but th- that's really cool that you have that. Where, how did you get get the musket as part of your collection? So that's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, it survived the fire, <laughs> and the records did not. So, um, quite honestly, that's there that's anyone's go. guess. Uh, 
Yes. Uh, so provenance, not the name of the game at Fort William Henry, unfortunately, uh, but we are in the process again. It's we've got we've got quite the collection um, and we are very much in the process of getting through everything so that we can build build a sort of provenance for those mm-hmm. things that we do not have Um there were several uh, businessmen back in the 50s as well that did uh, donate a lot of items to the collection of the Fort William Henry that uh, were able to add on to the items that they found during those archaeological digs. So we assume because of its pretty pristine condition um, and value that it was donated from one of those businessmen. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. There's, there's always a mystery at the museum. Yes. Always. <laughs> always, always. So do you guys fly the Union Jack over the fort? So we're a bit before the Union Jack, actually. I just had a gentleman Ooh, uh, a gentleman wow. come in and say, hey, why, you know, it's missing that cross. And I said, no, 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 sir. Um, yes. So we do have, uh, we have the American flag, uh, British and uh, French as well. So we like to represent everybody. You know, the French did win. So to be fair, we yeah, fly theirs yeah, as well. That's fair. <laughs> I, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Well, Lindsay, thanks for joining Absolutely. us today. Um, and uh, with that, we'll close out this edition of the M Files. Um, just a reminder new episodes of our podcast will be dropping every couple of weeks. Uh, new episodes, along with those from previous seasons, are available on most podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. They are also available on our website. Uh, Also, when you get a chance, please take a few minutes to provide us with a review wherever you're getting the M-Files. Those reviews help other people find our podcast. In the weeks between episodes, join us on Facebook at the M-Files Podcast to keep our conversations going about the museum world. You can also email us directly at themfilespodcast@gmail.com. Check out the show notes for this episode for links to all of our social media. And with that, thanks again, and we'll see you again next time.